0: Hello and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber.
1: And today we're wrapping up our collection of stories celebrating Latinx Heritage Month with an episode on the ancestral Puebloans. And don't worry, it's just because we're wrapping up this collection. Doesn't mean that this is the end of them. We'll have plenty more stories from the Latinx and Hispanic worlds in future episodes. For this episode, we're in the modern day American Southwest, in the Four Corners region of where the states Utah, New Mexico,
0: Arizona, and Colorado meet. Yep, and we're going to talk about the history of the ancient Puebloans. So before we start, beep 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 beep. beep, beep, beep. <coughs> It's an exonym alert. <laughs> Can we? So, so you don't want to opt out of these? Uh, no, you sure don't. Get push notifications to your smartphone for exonyms. So an exonym is a name for something that's given by a, a name for a group that is bestowed by someone external to that group, and, like
1: the Tarahumara.
0: Right. Exactly. So they call themselves the Mori and uh, the Spanish, I don't know couldn't do that with their mouths. They were like, the what? The what now? My tongue don't do that. Tarahumara. So you'll often see the name Anasazi used to describe the pre-Pueblo people. And this is a name from the Navajo language. It means something along the lines of ancient enemy, though very much a designation from an external perspective. Um, And understandably, (laughs) descendants of the ancient Puebloans uh, usually choose not to use Anasazi. Uh, And so, uh, out of respect for that, we're going to stick with Ancestral Puebloans or ancient Puebloans, along those lines.
1: And so, these folks—do I remember this correctly—that they are part of the um, Uto-Aztecan language family.
0: There are um, six. So, some of them are. Yeah, some of them are. There are six major language designations within the ancient Puebloans. Uto-Aztecan is is one of them. Yep.
1: Okay, so where it's like. Uh, this is a thread. Yeah,
0: we're doing it. It's almost like yeah. it's almost like we did this on purpose for a theme.
1: <laughs> yeah, almost.
0: <laughs> well, almost.
1: Welcome to Utah Aztecan Heritage Month.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a Utah Aztecan podcast. Let's jump into the timeline for the ancient Puebloans. So we start with uh, <laughs> a... a a period of real time tight. with real some tight. real tight A chronology. long time ago. Uh, between 40 and 15,000 years ago is the spread of people into North America. So that's a range. Um, if you go back and listen to our Ancient Footprints episode, uh, we can definitely pinpoint 15,000 years ago as the for sure earliest that we know of time that... Uh, People literally set foot in North America. Then at 10,000 years before present, so uh, between 8,000 and 1,200 BCE, um, we have the archaic early basket maker era, and it's called that because these people used uh, weaving materials, so like grasses and and twigs and things. Not twigs, like pieces of, strips of, of wood. I'm <laughs> just imagining like little bird nest baskets. Maybe. I don't know. Um, no. These were <laughs> – probably not. These They had an Etsy store. No, these were mostly hunter-gatherers. There was little evidence of sedentary living before 8,000 BCE. And um, so these were people who were living a nomadic lifestyle. And that continued through around 50 CE. So this is the archaic – early basket maker era, and early basket maker two era. There's going to be a lot of this type of chronological designation. Um, We're going to use the dates for for more clarity, but uh, it's nice to know what these things are called by archaeologists. In the early Basketmaker II era, so this is ranging from 1500 BCE to 50 CE, the early Puebloans camped and lived out in the open or seasonally lived in caves. And this is important because living in caves is going to lead to the later um, architecture based on the, the cliff faces that, that is so uh, emblematic of, of these cultures.
1: And so these, these um, the seasonal living, mm-hmm. usually because of the climate that I've lived most of my life in. I would think that you live in the cave when it's too cold outside. Um, but would this be something where the season in which they live in caves is when it is too hot to live in the open?
0: I actually don't know, and I suspect that it is more like um during the seasons when resources dip. so okay. like, yeah, maybe summer winter and then okay or or fall winter. I'm not sure.
1: Okay, but it would it would follow a pattern that would be dictated by, what, their, like, animal husbandry? What is that? Transhumance? Would it be something like that?
0: Or just weather? Well, I think it would start off as response to seasonal availability of things that they are hunting and gathering, so the animals and plants that are available on the landscape. But during the early basket maker period, they start to cultivate gardens of, of maize, so the... Mm-hmm. the um, ancestral plant, Teosinte. They start to gradually develop it, uh, preferentially for bigger seeds, that kind of thing. So it eventually turns into corn. And they also uh, grew squash, but no beans. So that, that triad of South American, Mesoamerican um, agriculture, corn, beans, and squash. They used, we have archaeological remainders of the manos and matates. So it's like a big mortar and pestle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I The first time I read that in the script, I thought they were using mangoes and i was like oh dang yeah they use their mangoes to grind
0: corn (laughs) the mangoes (laughs) that for sure (laughs) the the mangoes that for (laughs) sure grow in arizona those arizona mangoes ah yes no so they Um, it's manos. that's the the grinding stone and matate and then
1: the matate is the
0: surface upon which you grind correct
1: but they had no pottery
0: they did not they had baskets
1: yeah they were still doing that basket Uh, things and which it makes sense
0: yeah pottery's heavy
1: and and also pottery is real hot to make.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, Arizona, Utah, yeah. warm warm areas.
1: Yeah. And if it ain't broke,
0: but make a basket. Well, yeah. <laughs> the old adage, if it ain't broke, use a basket. Great. These people had storage bins, shallow pit houses, and at this stage there is evidence that there was sort of the beginning of a religious and social decision-making structure. Um, there were shamanistic cults, and there were petroglyphs and other rock art, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, that indicate yeah. a ceremonial structure as well. So um, these small groups that were leading these kind of semi-agricultural lifestyles start to meld into larger scale um, societies. This I'm excited about this next part. So speaking of sort of uh, ceremonial things and, and um
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Shut up. I want to talk about mummies. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Mm. Yeah, let's just... Mummies.
0: <laughs> We're there. So... Oh, wait. Hang on. Someone's we got like some using, mummies. Hang on. Someone's using a jackhammer outside my apartment. Can you hear that? Yes.
1: <laughs> Shut up. I want to talk about mummies. Can you let them know? Excuse me, sir? <laughs> sir?
0: <laughs> mummies.
1: Okay. Okay. All right. Not just any mummies, well-preserved mummies. My favorite kind of mummy. Um, yep. Well-preserved mummies um, have been found in dry caves, very dry caves, and they provide insight into the, the ancient basket makers themselves. So from these, from these mummies um, that have been um, excavated, we know that women were about five feet tall and, and men were about three to four inches taller than the women. So. Five, three, five, four. Um, And folks had long, narrow faces and medium to stocky build. As for skin tone, uh, among these mummies, uh, skin varied from light to dark brown. And they had brown or black hair and eyes. I'm guessing brown or black hair, (laughs) brown or black eyes. They had brown and black hair. They also had eyes. (laughs) Some folks were, were coiffed. Well coiffed, they have fancy hairstyles. Sometimes on worn by the men, and less frequently worn by women. And women's hair seems to have been cut short. And significant quantities of rope made of human hair have been recovered. And since it was more likely that men had fancy hairstyles, the hair for rope may have been may have come from women. So huh. these folks wore sandals made of woven yucca fibers or strips of leaves. Um, and there's little evidence of clothing aside from a few loincloths found at archaeological sites. And women may have worn aprons
0: on special occasions. <laughs> and <laughs> sorry, I just like apron is an odd word for it. I don't think it's like, I'm making a special roast.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like a, um, like a
0: covering for your frontages.
1: As for accessories, Uh, Both men and women wore necklaces, bracelets, and pendants made of shell, stone, bone, and dried berries. Um, Shells such as abalone, conus, and olivella uh, from the Pacific coast uh, could have been obtained via trade networks. And so they also were included in their jewelry.
0: Yeah. So that's cool. It is very cool, especially the part about trade. And we're going to... Hit on that a little yeah. bit later as well. Um, yeah. So let's go back to the timeline. The end of the, the basket maker period, uh, we see these d- deep pit houses along with some above ground rooms. And that makes sense because uh, it's cooler if you dig a pit uh, rather than having an above ground house where the heat you know, rises. The atlatl and the spear had been the primary hunting weapon, but these are replaced by the bow and arrow. And we've talked about atlatls before. Um, it's a, a spear with a special throwing stick that makes the spear go much farther and faster. And at the end of the basket maker period, there is the appearance of some pottery. It's mostly bisque ware, which is this like a crew off-white colored, um, I guess bisque colored. Like yeah, if you have a yeah, nice a nice seafoody bisque. It's that sort of creamy off-white. Um, and there's some painted black on white pottery. And, um, the cultivation of beans begins. These have been made available due to trade from Central America. And, uh, now that they have pottery vessels, they can cook those beans nice and slow and make them not completely indigestible. Other food staples are uh, also include wild amaranth and pinyon pine. So these are, Food resources that take a lot of time and effort to extract. Wild amaranth has tiny, tiny grains, and pinyon pine is pine nuts. It means you have to extract the little nuts from every little, you know, facet of a pine cone. So uh, they had time to spare. People of this time may also have had domesticated turkeys. After the basket maker period, we start to see the Pueblo period. And this extends from 750 CE through uh, the present, technically, but um, really through to 1600, which is when the Spanish arrive in the area. Wah, wah, sad trombone. (laughs) Okay. So the Pueblo periods are when we start to see the architecture that these groups are famous for and for whom they are named. We see this architecture throughout the Southwest Ancestral Puebloan region, particularly At Mesa Verde, the best known of the sites, for the, uh, it's got large numbers of well-preserved cliff dwellings, um, housing, defensive, and storage complexes. And these were built in shallow caves and under rock overhangs along canyon walls. Just as a side note, this is the same thing that you see in southwest France where there are limestone cliffs everywhere and you can't throw a rock without hitting a cave. And in the limestone cliffs, when you drive along the roads, you'll see cuttings into the face of the cliffs where medieval people in the middle ages would have had buildings built out of the caves like often way up into the cliff faces and so beams and things would have extended out and you can see these rectangular cuttings where the beams would have uh, slotted into the cliff face and um you know they had platforms where so they would have kept livestock and everything and so you can you can still see that so it's really neat it's one of my favorite parts of driving to site in southwest France in the in the pueblo structures uh these Uh, buildings were mostly blocks of hard sandstone held together and plastered with adobe mortar and so adobe is the spanish word uh for earthen uh so it means like Um, mud brick construction basically
1: what language did you say it was
0: well adobe itself the word adobe Uh is is modern spanish but it comes Um. from somewhere right it sure does. This is the fun language fact that I found for yes. you. Do you fun love it? Fun language
1: fact for me. I do. I love it so much. Um, So the word Adobe has existed for around 4,000 years with relatively little change in either pronunciation or meaning.
0: It's literally as old as dirt.
1: Yes, it is. The word can be traced from the Middle Egyptian um, around 2000 BCE, um, and the word is spelled... Upside down F, D, T. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, okay, um, <laughs> great. And so that word meant mud brick. Okay, uh, that's the noise you make e- when you
0: get hit in the face <laughs> with a <the> mud brick.
1: <laughs> so Middle Egyptian, as as I discussed on the um, on our episode about the Rosetta Stone, um, it. It evolved and so Middle Egyptian became late Egyptian, which became demotic, and which became Coptic. And it became Coptic six hundred BCE, where it showed up as uh Tobe. And so that was adopted into Arabic as Attaubu or Atubu, uh with the definite article Al attached, Al Tuba. And so this was assimilated into the old Spanish language as adobe, uh, probably via Mozarabic. Um, and so, Wait, go, remember... Wait,
0: so remember is Mozarabic sort of Moorish?
1: Yeah. There are a ton of words in Spanish that come from Arabic. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those words come with things that came from Arabic-speaking places or people. Algebra. So like, algebra, yes. Algebra. Yes. What? <laughs> I was thinking oranges. Oh. Um, <laughs> I was thinking of, like, things you trade, and you're like, Meh. uh But, yeah, that, yeah. So you have stuff that comes with it. And then um, during the the fullest extent of the Islamic Empire, where you have uh, Al-Andalus, so what's now Andalusia. 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 Uh, Yes, as was Al-Andalus. So that's like the Iberian Peninsula that is, that, that was, uh, part of the Islamic Empire. And so you have a lot of, um, Arabic coming into the local language. So that's what happened here because probably the people, like, when you're building this, you're like, what do you call this? They're like, oh, we call it. Yeah, we, taubu. we mean like what? We Adobe? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, so we're just going to call it Adobe. What was it? Um, Tar- <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. And so English borrowed the word from Spanish in the early 18th century, referring to, still referring to mud brick construction because English speaking people were hanging out in North America. Well, yeah. In North America around people who were speaking Spanish. And so that's also a very cool way to
0: see who came up with mud bricks. Well, let's get back on track. Major (laughs) sites and regions of of the Puebloan people. So three UNESCO World, World Heritage sites in the United States are credited to Puebloans. That's Mesa Verde National Park, which I mentioned, Chaco Culture National Historical Park, and Taos Pueblo. And these are known for their, again, adobe architecture. The best preserved examples of the stone and earth dwellings are now protected within United States national parks. And so um, more of these places are Navajo National Monument, um, Canyons of the Ancients National Monument. That sounds like a really cool movie, Canyons of the Ancients. Um, Aztec Ruins National Monument, Bandelier National Monument, Hovenweep National Monument, and Canyon de Chile National Monument. That can't be how that's pronounced.
1: The jelly canyon, the um, jelly.
0: <laughs> this is crazy. to, yeah, to me, I, yep. to yep. me, an out of shape, scared person. Yep. These no villages thanks. were accessible only by rope or through rock climbing,
1: and I am too fat and too scared to go there.
0: <laughs> However. The first ancestral Puebloan homes and villages were based on the pit house, a common feature in the basket maker periods, as mentioned. So these villages consist of apartment-like complexes and structures made from stone, adobe mud, and other local materials, or were carved into the sides of canyon walls. Um, and interestingly, and another indicator of, of these trade networks that exist. So, uh, like the, the beads, the shell beads and things that we see on those mummies, design details from ancestral Puebloan villages contain elements from cultures as far away as present day Mexico. And that's real Hey, yeah. remember this. Hey, remember this. Hey, I'm pay gonna attention. I'm going to share something at the end. Okay. Yeah, pay attention to this. Okay. Wait, me or the listeners?
1: I mean, both of you.
0: I always pay attention when you talk. Uh,
1: oh, well, that's nice. I mean, I always, always pay attention when you talk to you.
0: No, you took too long. <laughs> so when they were inhabited in their heyday, these ancient towns and cities were usually multi-storied and multi-purpose buildings surrounding open plazas and view sheds. That's just a flat place where you can see stuff. But it doesn't sound as good in an academic what? paper.
1: View sheds?
0: Yeah. Like, so it's like a, like a scenic overlook? No, no. It's just like literally... A standing your your point of view when you're standing somewhere is a viewshed. When Mufasa so, and Simba are overlooking oh the Pride Lands, and he yeah. says, "Everything the sun touches is yours." That's his viewshed.
1: So the viewshed is what the sun touches, or the viewshed is the rock upon which they stand.
0: No, that what the sun touches.
1: Okay. Is this like a phenomenological thing? Of, yeah. Like very The much experience so. of mm-hmm. looking. And see – okay, cool. We should talk about okay. that sometime.
0: Anyway, so Let's. these cities were occupied by hundreds to thousands of ancestral Pueblo people. And the population complexes hosted cultural and civic events. So they had like Lollapalooza. Looking, look, looking at things, look palooza And uh, an infrastructure that s- supported a vast outlying region hundreds of miles away linked by transportation roadways.
1: Transportation roadways, you say? That's what I said. Ah, well – Welcome to Chaco Canyon. One of the most fascinating and intriguing aspects of Chaco Canyon is the Chaco Road. It's, so it's not just one road. It's a system of
0: roads. Yeah, Chaco and Road.
1: Yeah, the, the Chaco Road system radiates out from many Pueblo and Great House sites, such as Pueblo Bonito, um, Chetro Queto, mm-hmm. and Una Vida.
0: One life. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it so radiates, radiates out from there and leads towards smaller outlier sites and natural features within and beyond the canyon limits. So these are excavated um, into a smooth leveled surface in the bedrock. So like not excavated by archaeologists, excavated no, no, by, by yes. like the road crew yeah. um, <laughs> um, into a smooth leveled surface in the bedrock or created through the removal of vegetation and soil. So the ancestral Puebloan residents of Chaco Canyon cut large ramps and stairways into the cliff rock to connect the roadways on the ridgetops of the canyon to the sites on the valley bottoms. So you got the road above and the sort of the neighborhoods below. So it's kind of like a big
0: old overpass system. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so the largest roads were constructed at the same time as many of the great
0: houses. Which are the big Um, cliff dwellings.
1: Yeah, like the ones at Pueblo Bonito, Chetroquedo, and Una Vida. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is between 1000 and in the Common Era.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the longest and most famous of these roads is the Great North Road. It originates from different routes close to Pueblo Bonito and Chetroquedo. And so these roads converge at Pueblo Alto and from there lead north beyond the canyon limits. There are no communities along the road's course, apart from small, isolated structures. So, like, rest stops. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they have, like, a...
0: Some beef jerky.
1: Uh, yeah, you have, like, a... What are they called? On the turnpike?
0: The toll, like, a toll booth?
1: No, no, no. They are like, the service plazas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, there are some of those. I mean, I have no idea if that's actually what they're for, but it would stand to reason that they would be for that, that they would be for some kind of... For
0: for peeing and snacks, yep. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, And you see this in, like, roadways the world over, where people have to go and, like, if they're going long distances, they may need somewhere to sleep, they may need somewhere to, like, uh, obtain some food, maybe, like... There's like a, a ritual, like a worship component. But that's that the thing. Place. The Great North Road doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go. It's the road to
0: nowhere. Well, as, far, as far as we know. We don't know.
1: The road to somewhere unknown. <laughs> um, so apart from those, that's it. So the Great North Road does not connect Chacoan uh, Chacoan communities to other major centers outside of the canyon. It was just the exit. It's the so exit ramp. It's the off ramp. Yep. Yeah. So material evidence of trade along that road is scarce. So from a purely functional perspective, the road doesn't go anywhere.
0: Yeah, which would seem to uh, defeat the purpose of a road, but that may not be, in fact, the purpose of the Great North Chaco Road. Yeah, tell me about that road. Um, So let's take a road trip. So, archaeological interpretations of the Chaco Road system are divided between an economic purpose and a symbolic ideological role linked to ancestral Puebloan beliefs. Are, why not both? That sounds
1: like where my career's
0: at right now. Oh, <laughs> uh, too real. Oof. So, the system was first discovered at the end of the 19th century and first excavated and studied in the 1970s. Archaeologists suggested that the road's main purpose was to transport local and exotic goods inside and outside the canyon. And so the economic purpose of the Chaco Road system is shown by the presence of luxury items at Pueblo Bonito and elsewhere in the canyon. So items such as macaws, as in the parrot. (laughs) Caught me unawares. (laughs) Macaws, turquoise, marine shells, and imported vessels, um, as in like clay vessels, not ships. You don't need ships in a desert, right? Okay. I mean... So, they, they prove these things prove that the long distance commercial relationships Chaco had with other regions, you know, proved that they existed. Um, a further suggestion is that the widespread use of timber in Chacoan constructions, which trees not hugely available in a desert cliff area, um, needed a large and easy transportation system. So, big old flat roads. Other archaeologists think that instead the main purpose of the road system was a religious one, providing pathways for periodic pilgrim. Periodic pilgrimages and facilitating regional gatherings for seasonal ceremonies. So, considering that some of these roads seem to go nowhere, experts suggest that uh, maybe they're linked, especially the Great North Road, to astronomical observations, things like the solstices, agricultural cycles, movements of planets, that kind of thing. So we don't we don't really know what that road do.
1: I'm gonna tell you about what archaeology tells us about the Chaco Road. Great, please do. Okay, great. So, funny that you mention astronomy, uh, because astronomy certainly played an important role in Chaco culture, um, as it is visible on the north-south axis alignment of many ceremonial structures. So, there's something, there's something to cardinal directions um, informing their, their planning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, from that, we think must be something astronomical happening. Uh, And so the main buildings at Pueblo Bonito, for example, are arranged according to this direction and probably served as central places for ceremonial journeys across the landscape. Sparse concentrations of ceramic fragments along the North Road, as we mentioned before, not a lot of stuff around the North Road. And so they think that um, they may have been related to some sort of ritual activities carried out along the roadway. Isolated structures located on the roadsides as well as on top of the canyon cliffs um, and ridge crests have been interpreted as shrines
0: related to these activities so not pit stops
1: and so a final point about these ro- roads uh is <laughs> these <laughs> roads <laughs> a final point about these roads is that there are features such as long linear grooves cut into the bedrock
0: along certain <laughs> roads which don't seem to point in a specific direction i was just thinking like sometimes when i'm going for walks and really feeling my music i have some long linear grooves <laughs> And so these don't really seem to point in a specific
1: direction, and it's been proposed that these were part of pilgrimage paths followed during ritual ceremonies. Sure. And yeah, sure, yeah. And archaeologists agree that the purpose of this road system may have changed through time th- over time, and mm. that the Chaco road system probably functioned for both economic and ideological reasons. I
0: find it very. Interesting. I like a, I like a mystery. Love a mystery. Do you also love a mythology? I do. I do love a mythology. So lay some mythology on me. So because this is not a five-hour podcast as much as we wish it could be, a lot of the Puebloan groups kind of share mythologies. A lot of the characters and deities are the same. Um, So we can't tell you all of them. Um, And although the names might vary in the different languages, some of the stories happen a little differently. We don't have time to take a mythology deep dive, at least this time. So um, we're just going to tell you some of the stories from the Hopi culture. And as always, we'll do our best with pronunciations. Most Hopi accounts of creation, because that's where you start when you talk about mythology with your creation myth, um, they center around Tawa, the sun spirit. Tawa is the creator and it was he who formed the first world out of endless space, um, as well as the original inhabitants of this first world. It is still traditional for Hopi mothers to seek a blessing from the sun for their newborn children. It's very nice. So other accounts have it that Tawa first created Sotuknang, whom he called his nephew, and he sent him to create the nine universes according to his plan, and it was Sotuknang who created Spider-Woman, or Spider-Grandmother. Spider-Woman served as a messenger for the creator and was a go-between between between the deity and the people. So um, in some versions of the Hopi creation myth, she's the one who creates all the life under the direction of Sotek Nong, who is the nephew of the sun god. Yet other stories say that life was created by, and I love this name, hard this being us. woman of the West and the Hard West. Being Woman of the East. That's me. I don't know if I wanna ascribe this to myself since it's very much not my culture, but so these these two hard being women created all life while the sun merely observed the process. Ugh, typical, am I right? <laughs> The so Hopi legend tells that the current Earth, Earth now, is the fourth world to be inhabited by Tawa's creations. The story states that in each previous world, the people, although originally happy, became disobedient and lived contrary to Tawa's plan. They engaged in sexual promiscuity, they fought one another, and they would not live in harmony. Basically, the world was then etch sketched and the oh. most obedient were delivered, usually by Spider-Woman, to the next higher world, Um, while the the former world, along with the bad inhabitants, was just wiped out. And then in other stories, the the good people are just sort of led away from the chaos, so like they stay on the same world, but elsewhere. And then we have Masawu, the skeleton man, who is the spirit of death, the earth god, doorkeeper to the fifth world, and the keeper of fire. He wears many hats. He was also the master of the upper world, or the fourth world, so this one earth, and was there when the good people escaped the wickedness of the third world for the promise of the fourth world. So previous earth. Uh, Masao is described as wearing a hideous mask, but also, uh, so there's this real diversity of myth among the Hopi, he's also alternately described as a handsome, bejeweled man beneath his mask, or as a bloody, fearsome creature. It varies, I guess, on how he's feeling that day. But he's also assigned certain benevolent attributes. So um, one story has it that it was Masawu who helped settle the Hopi at R.A.B., So I, I'm not sure where that is. Um, but he, he gave them stewardship over the land. So I guess it's their their territory, their original territory. And he also charged them to watch for the coming of the Pahana, the lost white brother. So that's interesting. That, that jives with a lot of... With that, like, classic Quetzalcoatl story of yeah. the Aztec, like, watch yeah. out for a, a a white, light-eyed person who's going to come from far away. It's interesting that that exists in lots of different places. Um, other important deities include the twin war gods, the Kachinas, and the trickster coyote. And I think Kachinas is, like, kind of minor deities. Anyway. On to corn. Wow. maize, Corn is vital to Hopi subsistence and religion. So for, for traditional Hopis, corn is the central bond. It symbolically, physically pervades their existence. Corn is sustenance, a ceremonial object, a prayer offering, a symbol, and a sentient being unto itself. Not in like a children of the corn kind of way. But... Mm. Um, Corn is the mother in the truest sense that people take in the corn and the corn becomes their flesh as mother's milk becomes the flesh of the child. And this is a really important spiritual belief, but also an opportunity to plug an episode.
1: Yeah. So, um, if you're talking about flesh and you're talking about corn, we're talking about man corn. I thought I happened upon a book that I read, um, Back in undergrad, called Mancorn, mm-hmm. um, and so it's a 1999 book. So, but it's a um, sort of comprehensive study of skeletal and taphonomic evidence from the American Southwest, and it is entitled "Mancorn: Cannibalism and Violence in the Prehistoric American Southwest." So, remember when I told you and everyone to remember about how those trade networks there. At the end of the basket maker period, at the beginning of the Pueblo period, how they were extending all the way to Mexico.
0: I remember you saying that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that that comes into play when we're talking about um, cannibalism in the American Southwest. It is. It isn't as though it's pervasive or um, extremely common, but there is – Well, I mean, like any evidence is like a lot of evidence in, well, in things like this.
0: Like Cookie Monster um, says, it's not an all-the-time food.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yes, people is a sometimes food. But the reasons why cannibalism happens, these authors uh, suggest um, that um, it happens through a combination of social control, social pathology, and ritual purpose within the Chacoan sphere of influence, and so what Turner and Turner, the authors of Mancorn, uh, suggest is that there is this this influx of of beliefs, maybe of people uh, themselves and of social practices that is around a uh, okay, Shipe uh, Totec and the Tetzcatlipoca Quetzalcoatl complex, and so it's
0: this these warrior cultists yeah, they're te- called Tetzcatlipoca. I sort of lost pronunciation there, but that's a that's an Aztec war god, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's these twin war gods, eh?
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but the Aztec twin war gods, and so there are so you what you were describing in Hopi beliefs, like there are similarities, and so what the the authors don't try to figure out because it's not the point of this work is whether this is cultural diffusion or just direct contact, but part of this warrior twin warrior god religious cult is the ritual consumption of people and so you have like human sacrifice and processing of people that way but in the american southwest it wasn't studied for a long time even though the first like archaeological evidence was found in about 1893 Uh, but they didn't but it's like a rather unsavory topic, uh, and so people didn't want it's a very to. Very to... savory
0: topic, yeah. So Meaty. people
1: didn't. Yes, yes. Um, and so it it wasn't it wasn't something that was um, studied extensively until this this work, which is really fascinating, and is something that comes up in this month's Dirt After Dark episode, which is all about cannibalism. Delicious. Yes, which is, is something that I know an awful lot about. Uh, it's only a matter of time before I bring up my facts about cannibalism. Yeah, the word awful is key there. <laughs> this is like the like a natural segue mm-hmm. from, from this episode into uh, this month's Dirt After Dark, which is available on Patreon. For those contributing at the $20 a month or above, they get Dirt After Dark, which... Is our saltiest um, of episodes. It ranges and from mildly risque to just filthy. <laughs> yes. If you are subscribing to Dirt After Dark, you also get old news and deep cuts. There's but for three now, bonus speaking of months. Oh, oh, get this, get this, get Yo, this segment. What's up? What? Speaking of deep cuts, petroglyphs. Hey, oh. <laughs> oh, you're so good at your
0: job. You're so good at podcasting. <laughs>
1: Now that I'm done with my unfortunate aside into man corn, uh, man, man corn, petroglyphs are rock carvings. So they're figurative or symbolic images that are carved into the rocks rather than painted onto the rocks. So if it's painted onto a rock, it's a petrograph.
0: This is for you people who uh, really enjoy the um actually. Yes.
1: Bust that out at your next cocktail party.
0: Mm hmm. Um, And so these usually, both
1: of these usually have a religious or spiritual significance or are a storytelling or visual history tool. So usually whatever is fueling it, fueling a, a petroglyph or a petrograph is something that is important enough to you that you are willing to stand on the side of a rock and like chip away at it or paint at it with some kind of indelible product.
0: Yes. Yeah, like, just you gotta want it. Yeah. You're not bored. It's for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Usually.
1: And so, there is a very, very cool online resource um, called the Online Hopi Petroglyph Archive. And so, this is done through sci uh the World Monuments Fund, and the Co- Hopi Cultural Preservation Office. Um, they have paired up with the University of Redlands Associate Professor, Dr. Wesley Bernardini, to launch the Hopi Petroglyph site's Digital Preservation Project
0: website. It's not really an yeah. acronym that you can pronounce very well. It's like H-P-S-A-D-P-F-A. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in marketing. Uh,
1: okay. <laughs> and so the site contains um, multimedia, uh, um, a virtual tour, and um, lesson plans and educational resources related to Tutu Vani which means newspaper rock and hopi. That's my favorite newspaper rock. So, it's like Facebook, but it's a rock. Face rock. <laughs> uh Tutu contains 5,000 petroglyphs of Hopi clan symbols and it's 150 sandstone boulders. So, you think about 150 boulders, 5,000 glyphs. Like that's pretty incredible. And it's also super, oh, It's am- I love this. I, I love uh, things like this that are done to make like archaeological sites and and like cultural information available widely. Yeah. These so like that, visual yeah, so archives. Ugh. Yeah. So you don't have to be able to travel to them to see them. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, 5,000 petroglyphs, It's probably a few usual suspects among
0: them. Yeah, and and someone who shows up in an awful lot of petroglyphs is Coco Pelli is the Hopi name. Um, I've also seen uh, Nepoquai as a, a different Pueblo name for him. And he is one of those uh, Kachinas or Kachinas. That um, that we mentioned before. So he is a fertility deity, and he's usually depicted as a humpbacked flute player. Although I I never thought of him as humpbacked. I always thought of him as like kind of bent over, like jamming. Yeah, he
1: looks like he's grooving. He's yeah, like
0: really into the flute, uh, it's sort of jazz jazz flute. Um, he is usually depicted he's, with feathers. He's a or jazz flautist. A jazz flautist. <laughs> he's often depicted with feathers or kind of like antennae protrusions on his head, or crazy hair. Who knows. Cocopelli um, presides over childbirth and agriculture, and those things are often linked in sort of spiritual beliefs. Yeah. And he's he's also a trickster god and represents the spirit of music, which I, I love that sort of music and, and prankishness are, are linked together, as they should be. Among the Hopi, Cocopelli carries unborn children on his back and distributes them to women. <laughs> like, you get a baby! You get a baby! So, And uh, the article that I was reading said... For this reason, young girls often fear him. <laughs> like, I don't want a baby! Um, <laughs> he often takes part in rituals relating to marriage, and Cocopelli himself is sometimes depicted with a consort, a woman called pelmimi by the Hopi. And it is said that you can see Cocopelli on the full and waning moon. So, like, in, in Chinese culture, the, the rabbit on the moon, you can see, or I guess the man in the moon, Um you can see cocopelli on the moon and in his domain over agriculture cocopelli's flute playing chases away the winter and brings spring so um, the spring rains so so many tribes including the zuni um, and the hopi also associate cocopelli with rains
1: i have a question about mm-hmm. cocopelli mm-hmm. why did i see him so much in <laughs> like art and
0: clip like jewelry, art? and
1: yeah, and like hippie nineties. I like, think
0: Southwest art got really popular in the nineties, and he was just part of. He just came with it.
1: But okay, so I just was, I just was wondering because it's because now I just see him a lot at that store that's in some mall, that some like places airports. that smell of incense. You know
0: that that store at airport. I, I do know that store. Uh, he's at that store, but he's also <laughs> like more importantly, he. Pervades Pueblo culture and mythology, and is all over those petroglyphs. And he has real spiritual meaning. So let's not let's not diminish that. But
1: oh yeah, yeah no. Then that's something that is kind of like more troubling about this that it is like a significant and pervasive figure. Yeah, and and so and so it becomes just sort of this like tokenized, right?
0: It, the, like mini, the meaning the meaning diminishes. Yeah. yeah, and so um, we try very hard to to be mindful of this sort of thing when we come across it and and we encourage you to do the same listeners yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so you know if you uh if maybe i don't know you have an aunt who's like big into her like matching kogopeli necklace and also eyes.
0: loves dream catchers
1: yep yeah, maybe maybe sit her down have a chat just a nice one just friendly like, just a, a nice like, one a friendly
0: one yeah, yeah this
1: be like, hey, I just heard this podcast and learned this, and then exactly. I went and did additional reading, and I've learned these things. And feel Come free with me Aunt. to blame us,
0: the dirt. <laughs> yes. Hi, welcome to the dirt, a podcast that's your scapegoat.
1: <laughs> Speaking of scapegoats, hmm? which is, is like a vaguely threatening that, sounding yeah, word.
0: That phrase <laughs> strikes terror into the heart of me. Guess what's
1: coming? If you're listening to this the day
0: that it drops, guess what's coming?
1: Tomorrow. The most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) Spooktober! Yes, so Spooktober is happening and we are doing our darndest to give you the best and spookiest month of content possible. We are going to have so much. We're going to have extra content this month, also, uh, because we are doing a special bonus episode in um, in partnership with International Archaeology Day. That's done by the Archaeological Institute of America. And mm-hmm. so, if you subscribe to us, you don't have to do anything special. That episode will just drop in your feeds, like and,
0: spooky magic, like spooky magic.
1: Uh, but that one will be less overtly spooky. Yeah, it's just going to be archaeological. But the rest of our content, we are going to have some (laughs) fun with. um, Ghouls Mm. and ghosts and beasties, but uh, mostly in that order. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you've been on the fence about joining us on Patreon, this may be the month because this month is so good. Also, in hindsight, I'm thinking about what our next episode is, and I don't want to imply that... Our very special guest is a ghoul or a goblin.
0: No, he's a lovely, intelligent, yeah, yeah. and very accomplished man. He is, he is, in fact, either of those things. Nope. Uh, but he's some super ghouls great. and goblins will come up. But, but also, I did a special spooky version of the theme song. So, <laughs> like, that's how committed we are to Spooktober. <laughs> but if you have been on the
1: fence about supporting right, us sorry. on Patreon. Yeah, support us. Do it. Um, this is this would be a great month to do that. You can find us over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. So not only will you be getting on board for all of the sweet, 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 scary content that's coming out this month, but you'll get our back catalog of all the other great stuff we've done. Mm-mm. Um, and if you are if you find commitment very spooky, you can make a one-time donation towards some of our upcoming goals and things over at thedirtpod.com slash goals.
0: Yep, and if you like things just the way they are, you can continue to follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever else you get your podcast fix. Uh, Think about dropping us a rating uh, or a review. Throw us some stars in in units of five, please. We'd appreciate it tremendously since that's what helps uh, Apple Podcasts Notice us, and we would love to be noticed. You can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. If you
1: don't want to remember all of those things but still want to see all of that content, you can find it all in one place over at our home on the web, thedirtpod.com. Or you can send us an email, thedirtpodcast at gmail.com.
0: And thank you so much for listening to The Dirt. We appreciate you so much, and we love you.
1: Yes. We do. Bye. Bye. <laughs>